Good morning. Hey, go open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. And while you're finding Galatians 3, let me tell you about my brother. His name is Tim. He's 18 months older than I am, and today he is one of my best friends. But back in the day when we were kids, we fought every single day like the worst enemies. We were very close in age, like I said, extremely competitive. And when I say we fought, I mean we would often bruise each other and sometimes even draw blood. Anybody have a relationship like that with a sibling? You fight a lot? Okay, I see a lot of hands going up. Like I said, we're, we're, we're good friends today, but back in the day, we fought over everything. We used to fight over the simplest things. Who got the last Oreo cookie? We used to fight about that. Who got the remote control? We used to fight about who got to ride shotgun. Who had to get in the back seat? We'd fight over personal space. We'd fight over sports. You name it, we would fight over it. My, my father got so tired of being the referee that I'll never forget the day he came home and he gave each of us a pair of boxing gloves. And he said, I can't stop you from fighting all the time, but at least I can stop you from killing each other. And it was one of the greatest gifts ever. Literally, by the time we were out of high school, we wore the padding out of those boxing gloves. And we used to stage boxing matches in our front yard with bells and everything, ding, ding. And we'd go at it like Rocky Balboa. And, and, and I'm telling you, I have no idea what our neighbors thought about this, but we loved it, all right? Now, as much as my brother and I fought as kids, there were some lines that you never crossed. We had rules about fighting, believe it or not. Couldn't do this, couldn't hit there, and you couldn't do a lot of things. But there was one line that you never crossed, and we called it the I promise line. The I promise line is this. In our house, lying was like the worst sin you could ever do. So we knew you never lied. And so if you say I promise and you uh, you know, don't fulfill that, then you are a liar. And there's nothing worse in my home about them being a liar growing up. So we would say things like this. If my brother said something that seemed really far-fetched, I would say, Tim, do you promise? And if he couldn't promise, then I knew he was telling me a fib. He wasn't, he wasn't being honest with me. Or he was trying to lead me down someplace. Or if he said to me, he said, Joe, do you promise that's true? And I'm like, well, then he wouldn't follow you. Noah, you're lying to me. It's funny, even as adults to this day, we're both in our 40s, and we do catch ourselves from time to time saying, you promise? You promise? It's still, because a promise is a promise. I'll tell you, when I think about a promise is a promise, I think about Galatians chapter 3. Because in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to remind the Christians there about a promise a promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. A promise that is still a promise that is still true to this very day. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I'd like for you to turn your attention to the screens behind me. It's going to be Genesis 12. We're going to read in verse 1, and I just want to read this promise. Having a little bit of understanding about this promise is going to make Galatians 3 a lot, make it a lot more sense to us. So let me read it for you. The Lord said to Abram, it's also the same as Abraham, he said, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, in this promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, what God is doing is he is revealing a part of his salvation master plan. Now, all Abraham or anyone else knew back then was that God was going to make a mighty nation out of his family. Abraham did not have children when God made this promise. So somewhere in the future, God would give Abraham children, and this family would grow into a mighty nation, and this mighty nation would be a blessing to all people all over the earth. Now today, we have the luxury of having the complete Bible. We can read the Old Testament. We can read the New Testament. We have the full picture today of God's salvation master plan. And so we have put the dots together. God, uh, through Abraham's family, created this chosen people called the Israelites. That's what Abraham's family became. Also in the Bible, they're referred to as the Hebrews, They are also referred to as the Jews. It's all the same group. But out of this family came a chosen people, and out of this chosen people, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would be born. Jesus was a Jew. And because of Jesus, all nations, all people everywhere have the opportunity to be a part of God's family, to be a part of of this chosen people through faith in Jesus Christ. So, This promise that God made to Abraham is something that Paul will directly refer to as we read Galatians chapter 3 as he is striving to prove and write to these Galatians that, listen, it's faith in Jesus, it's not these rules of the law that you seem so attached to. Now, do you remember from chapter 1 and chapter 2 why Paul is trying to prove to them that it's just faith in Christ and that the law that they're following so legalistically has no power to save. Do you remember what's going on? You see, there was these Christians that were spread out through the province of Galatia, and they were turning away from the true gospel. Paul says they they were turning to something that was actually a false gospel. He says it's a perverted gospel, no gospel at all. They falsely believed that faith in Jesus Christ wasn't enough to obtain salvation. They had to add some things to it. And this addition was having a legalistic view and obedience to the old covenant law. So they were taught and were persuaded to believe that you had to believe in Jesus and you had to obey the law to a T in order to be made right in God's eyes. And, and, And Paul has been spending the first two chapters of his letter just trying to convince them otherwise, trying to prove to them that it's just Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. And this promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, well, that is a huge piece of the discussion that Paul is now going to introduce to them. Now, one final detail about this promise to Abraham that we have to understand before we read Galatians 3 is this, that the promise that God made to Abraham and his master plan of salvation, if you will, that was set in motion long before the old covenant law was ever established. The promise came before the rules. The promise came before circumcision. The promise came before special holidays. The promise came before the Sabbath. The promise came before all of these rules that these Christians thought they had to obey. Now, I want you to lock that away in your mind because by the time we get to the end of the sermon today, we're gonna come back to this. Just remember for now, the promise came first. God's master plan was set in motion first. Now, let's look at Galatians chapter three. Let's start reading in, in chapter, or verse one, rather. 
Paul says, you foolish Galatians. How do you like how this chapter starts? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Do you understand what he's asking him? Did you receive Christ? Did you get saved by, by believing? In the, did you receive the Spirit that way? Or because you did something to earn it? That, that's his question. Which way did you get it? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again, I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard. He starts off by calling them foolish. I don't think this is so much as a cut down as he's just speaking truth to them because what they were doing was very foolish. He says, Christ has been clearly portrayed to you as crucified, as clear as anyone has ever received this message, but yet you are turning to something else. And, and he says, that is a foolish thing to do. It's interesting to me as I read this, that none of these Christians in the, in the province of Galatia, they were there, none of them were there when Jesus was nailed to that cross. Paul wasn't even there when Jesus was nailed to the cross that we know of. He met Jesus later. But he says yet that Christ and his crucifixion has been clearly portrayed to you so that you have every reason to believe. What does he mean by that? Well, I can tell you for them, Paul came as a messenger of Jesus and he presented the true gospel and he clearly explained what the, what the cross meant and Jesus being crucified and, and his resurrection. So he's saying, you have been, it's been clearly portrayed to you. So why are you so foolish now turning from that? You know, I, I think that what was true for them, that it was the crucifixion was clearly portrayed to them, is true. I believe that it's even more true for each and every one of us today. I think Christ has been more portrayed to us. And here, here's what I mean by that. See, when Paul was telling the Galatians about it, it was Paul saying, you need to believe in Jesus. And he presented the truth. But to us today, we have the complete revelation of God in our hands. We can open up the Bible. You can, you can grab a Bible right out of the, 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 the seat pocket in front of you and read about it yourself. We, we, we can learn why, why God sent his son you know, what God was hoping to accomplish by coming to this earth. We can read all about Jesus' message, that he came to seek and save the lost, that was his mission, why he had to die, what he fulfilled, why he rose from the dead, the victory it gives to us because of it, and what's going to happen in the future. We have the complete revelation. Christ being portrayed as crucified, I believe, is being done even more completely to us today. It's even more true for us. Think about the, all the artwork, all the artists throughout the centuries that have portrayed Christ crucified on the canvas. These pieces of art, these masterpieces are hanging in museums all over the world and have taught people and portrayed Christ as crucified visually for centuries. I think about all the dramatic plays, all the, 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 the actors and actresses for centuries who have dramatized what the Bible teaches and have taught, they've portrayed Christ as crucified in the arts. 
Think about all the books that have been written and published about the crucifixion and how they clearly portray that Christ has been crucified. A friend of my wife and I is up in Kansas City. Um, when she was 17 years old, she was, she was not raised in a Christian home. The only other Christian in her family was her grandmother, and her grandmother went out and bought the Left Behind book series. Do you remember those? Did you read those? And she had them in her house, and so this friend of ours, as a teenager, she picked up those books and she began to read them. Now, we could argue all day long whether they got it right or wrong in their description of the return of Christ, but I can tell you what I love about that series is I love the way they paint Jesus. And they make a very clear distinction. If you follow Christ, you will be saved. And she read that, and she's like, I want to be saved, and I want to follow Jesus because it portrayed to her Christ crucified and all of that. And she went on to Bible college and uh, ended up coming on staff with me in Kansas City. She is still on staff of that church serving the Lord in a variety of different ways. Books. I think about the movies. You don't have to look very far to find a movie about the crucifixion of Jesus. Probably none better than Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Have you seen that? Well, I'll tell you, that's not one of those movies that uh, you look at your wife and kids and say, hey, it's Friday, you want to pop in a frozen pizza and watch The Passion? It's not one of those kind of movies. That's hard to watch, isn't it? I, I remember um, sitting in the theater and the credits started to scroll at the end of that movie, and this was a packed theater. Nobody moved. It was deafening silence. All you could hear was the music of the credits, and it was just, wow. And I think Christ has been clearly portrayed as crucified in so many forms. What was true for the Galatians, I believe, is even more true for us. We don't have any excuses for unbelief. In fact, if we choose not to believe and we choose to turn to something else, then I believe that we would be more foolish than the Galatians because Christ has been so clearly crucified and portrayed as such to us. I sometimes wonder in the back of my mind, why do people not follow Jesus Christ? Why do they not acknowledge the Savior in a day and age where the portrayal of him being crucified and all that goes with that has been so clearly portrayed to us? I sometimes wonder, what goes through the mind of an unbeliever when they watch the movie like The Passion of the Christ as an unbeliever? What do they think? Maybe you saw that movie when you were an unbeliever, when you were far away from God, and maybe you can enlighten me. What went through your mind when you saw that movie and you saw Christ portrayed as crucified? You know, in, in my experience, whenever I get the chance to talk to people about the Lord, um, I don't know if I ever meet anybody that's completely ignorant of the Lord, completely ignorant of the name of Jesus. No, most people are not. Most people have some exposure. Christ has been portrayed in some way to them in this country. I don't think I ever meet anybody here in America that's completely ignorant of Jesus. I forget, a few years ago I was speaking with a guy and that I had just met that day. And, and so he says to me, so you're a preacher, huh? Friends, I never know where this conversation is going to go when somebody asks that question. You never know. And I said, well, yeah, I, I am a preacher. I, I am. And he goes, well, I wouldn't consider myself a committed Christian. I, I wouldn't live what you would say is the lifestyle. But, you know, I believe in God. Yes, sir, I do. It's the yes, sir, I do that stands out in my mind. Yes, sir, I do. 
We talked for about 20 minutes or so, and he told me a lot of things about Jesus. He had some facts. These facts weren't wrong. Now, I'm not his judge, of course. I, cannot dis- I couldn't discern that he was a man of faith or anything, but I'll tell you, he sure knew a lot about the Bible, but he did not know Jesus. And I think in most, people, most cases, lost people are not completely ignorant of the truth. They've been exposed. They've seen Christ portrayed as crucified. And that leads me to this conclusion. I think the reason why, maybe even the number one reason why, people won't follow Christ, it's not because they haven't been exposed, and maybe it's not even because they won't acknowledge that there's a God. I think people don't follow Christ simply because, it's very simple, they just don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to surrender to the Master. It's a scary thought that Christ has been so clearly portrayed as crucified here in America, so freely discussed in so many forms, yet still most people don't want to follow, they don't want to change, especially when eternity is on the line. I've had this thought, and I'll share it with you. When I visit with people about Jesus, I let them know that there is absolutely no downside to following Christ at all. I've tried to rack my brain. There is not one downside to following Jesus. So I talk to people and I say, hey, let's just say hypothetically that we die and we find out after death that everything that we believed about Jesus was completely false. We blew it. We missed it. Now, honestly, I don't believe that. By faith, I believe the exact opposite. I'm saying hypothetically. But let's just say we die and we realize, (laughs) man, we believe the Bible for nothing. I mean, it was all just a joke. What have we lost? Not one thing. Not one thing. But if we find out immediately after our death that everything the Bible proclaims is true and we don't believe it, then we've lost everything. There is no downside to faith in Jesus. It just simply comes down to, I don't want to change in this life. Eternity with the Lord is not important enough to me than the things I want to do in this world. And friends, that's a sad, sad, sad thing. Paul said this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Reality check. We're all going to stand before God one day. Nothing will ever change that. Not what you believe on this earth is going to change the fact that you will stand before your maker one day. And since this life is fragile, and the very fact there are no guarantees in this life that we will ever see tomorrow, and we might be having this conversation with God before the sun goes down today. There's not a one of us that are going to stand there at that moment and have an excuse in the world. Not one excuse for why we did not believe Christ's portrayal as crucified and the salvation plan that God set through faith in him. So let's keep reading. So Paul basically starts by saying, you all are foolish for doing this. Christ has been clearly portrayed as crucified, and you're turning to something else, and that's a very foolish thing to do. Look in verse 6. This is where he brings up the promise to Abraham. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Friends, that's a whole sermon all by itself, very doctrinal. Those who have faith are what? Children of Abraham. In other words, a part of God's family. Scripture foresaw that God would justify, God would make righteous, be in a right standing before God. He would justify the Gentiles by what? By their faith in Jesus. And announce the gospel in advance. So before Jesus ever came, announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the promise. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God's chosen people was much broader than what anybody realized when Paul was writing this. It's much broader. God's vision was far more expansive than what they thought. Faith in Jesus adds you to God's family. It was the same back then. It is the same today. And so Paul's like, why can't you Galatians see this? Your legalistic view of the Old Testament covenant, you know, is keeping you from understanding that it just takes faith in Jesus. It's about what you believe. So let's keep reading. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's a sermon all by itself too. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, us, through faith in Jesus. We might receive the promised spirit. Now, I would have no way of knowing this. This is just me creating a hypothetical situation, but I could visualize Paul is writing, and he is writing, I'm thinking there's steam coming from his pen, as he's just, because he's angry as he's writing this letter, and he says, you're foolish, and all this stuff, and I would imagine maybe he got to this point, he put his pen down, and he says, Lord, I need help. Lord, I need you, you've inspired me this far, I need help, because I don't know how to convince these Christians any more than what I've already said that it's just faith in Jesus. I've already told them about Abraham and that promise and how salvation is for everyone. It's so much broader than, than that. And that faith is not the law, it's faith and it comes through Jesus. What else could I say? And maybe Paul stopped and he prayed right there, Lord, give me something else to convince them that it's just Jesus. And when we get to verse 15, I hypothetically think maybe this is what God gave them. Paul's gonna point to them to an example in everyday life to help them understand the promise that God made to Abraham. So he's going to shift gears just a little bit. Look at verse 15. He says this, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Let's kind of pull this in here. Let's talk about something we deal with. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Paul is going to talk to them a little bit about legal contracts. That's what he's bringing up. It's a binding contract. He's like, no one's going to change the rules of a contract. I mean, even to this day, if you renege on a legal contract or you change the terms and conditions of the contract, you'll get in trouble. You know, that, that's, that's another lawsuit waiting to happen if you renege. What he's saying is, friends, this promise that God made to Abraham is like a binding contract. It's a covenant 
And he's like, the rules aren't changing. Nothing has changed about it. None of the law changes the promise. This is, think of it like a contract that God made with Abraham. This could be part of my master plan. So he goes on to verse 16 and says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So this is kind of the terms of this covenant, if you will. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. All that is to say this. God made a promise to Abraham, out of his family would come one that would change the world, and that's Jesus. That's the seed. That's what he's talking about. Verse 17, what I mean is this.